welcome to the Diplomen Podcast, where we will be talking with and about incredible women mediators, facilitators, negotiators, ambassadors, peacemakers, peace builders, and more. I am Karma Ekmekci, and I will be your host in this journey of mainstreaming the women, peace, and security agenda into our lifestyles. With a focus on the Arab region, the Diplomen Podcast comes to you in collaboration with the Isan Fars Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut, and is made possible by the generous support of UN Women. The Arabic subtitled video edition is available on the Diplomen Podcast YouTube channel. We're thinking out loud with Alexandra Deer and Azadeh Mouaveni in this new episode of the Diplomen Podcast. Alexandra is the UN Women's Regional Advisor on the Women, Peace and Security Agenda in the Middle East and North Africa. Azadeh is the Director of the Gender and Conflict Project at the International Crisis Group. Alexandra Azadeh, thank you for being with us today on the Diplomen Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Karma. Thank you, Karma and Alex. Let me start by saying that UN Women, for the past decade and more, has been working on many issues, women-related, but one of the core work that you do is on women, peace, and security. And recently, you've published, in my view, an extremely important piece of literature that talks about women's participation in local mediation. And these lessons are learned from Iraq, Libya, Syria, and Yemen. We live in a region plagued with conflicts, plagued with uncertainty, volatility, uh, war, and the role of women is becoming more and more not only important, but highlighted and underscored. And this paper does that in certain ways. So tell us, Alexandra, what is this paper really about? Yeah, thanks. So we are extremely proud that uh, we've been able to publish this, this report just a few days ago. And I think it, it really sheds an important light on the contribution that women are making across the region um, to peace efforts um, at, at the local level. And uh, why is this local level so, so important? Uh, it's important because we have a growing understanding that peace cannot just be made from the top down. I think we see this very clearly in, in all the conflicts in this region. Uh, you've mentioned um, Iraq, Libya, Syria, Yemen. In all of these cases, we're looking at protracted conflicts that we've been trying to solve through traditional, what we call track one level formal peace processes. And we have to be honest that the successes have been extremely modest. Something's not working. Something is clearly not working. Um, and one of the important things that is, is not working is this exclusive focus on that top level. Um, and there is now an understanding that we need to be building peace from the ground up. Uh, and so this is where what happens at the community level is extremely important and where women have a crucial role to play. 
and where we know they are actually playing a crucial role. So what we wanted to do in this publication is to look in more detail at that local level and really analyze how women are engaged, uh, who these women are, what strategies they employ, what some of their successes have been and what some of the challenges and obstacles that they encounter are and how we can, how we can address those and overcome those. And, and what have been some of those, uh, the major findings of this paper? So I think there are, I mean, I think it's a really fascinating report um, that sheds light on, on a number of, of really important issues. But I would perhaps highlight three myths that are being debunked in this report. And I think that this is really, this is really important. Mm -hmm. So the first one is about, the first myth is that women don't take on roles as mediators. I think there is still very much a predominant perception when you think of, of elite mediator in a conflict. You think about this sort of male figure of authority who takes on this very visible role of negotiating or facilitating the negotiations between the conflict parties. Mm -hmm. And um, what we show in this report is that women do actually play extremely important roles as mediators, but not necessarily in this visible lead mediator role. They very often um, portray the work that they do in ways that are a little bit more subtle. They kind of almost downplay their roles, you know? They don't necessarily say, well, we lead mediations, but they, but they will say, well, we facilitate dialogue, or we engage mm -hmm. in discussions at the community level. Is this, is this what you call in the report insider mediation then? So yeah, so this is exactly, so many of the, of the women who we interviewed as part of this, this report, um, they are, so they don't derive their status as mediators necessarily from a formal leadership role that they have but from their proximity to the parties of the conflict and their intimate understanding of what the grievances and issues are. And this is this insider mediator role that they are able to play and that they are able to play so effectively. And so we're documenting some of these, some of these examples and the very diverse profiles mm -hmm. of these different women. So this is the, the, the one really key, key finding and sort of key myth that, that we are debunking. The other really important um, myth that we are debunking is that uh, women only engage on, on a limited set of issues that are typically thought of as sort of more personal and family-related matters within, within the community. And that they don't engage in more political issues. Mm -hmm. And we show some really, really fascinating examples of women uh, mediating local ceasefires, negotiating the release of political prisoners, negotiating cross-line humanitarian access, negotiating access to natural resources, uh, water, and, and so forth. So really the full spectrum of issues that are so important at the community level, where so many tensions arise at the community level, and many of which are sort of very much at what we traditionally think of as sort of the, the hard end of the security and political spectrum. Right. So not just, not just the soft issues. And so I think it, um, it's really important that this report is able to show that women do engage uh, on, on all of these issues. And then the, the third issue that I think is, um, is really critical uh, is around the issue of social norms and traditions. Mm -hmm. 
And I think uh, what we are really able to, to uh, again, debunk here is this idea that it's somehow tradition that stands in the way of these women and that it's because tradition somehow uh, prevents women's political participation or that if women participate politically and in peace efforts, they are somehow uh, in violation of certain traditional social norms. And I think um, that the report shows uh, in a really nuanced way how actually these arguments that are being presented around tradition, that's a particular interpretation of tradition that is very much being instrumentalized by those who hold power predominantly men, of course, uh, to actually uh, marginalize these women and exclude these women so that they preserve their own superior status. And that if we look at the history of the region, there are actually many examples of women playing important roles within their communities, engaging to make peace, to be change agents, and, and so forth. And so it is not at all going against tradition. It is not at all going against religious norms or, or anything like that. Um, and, and it is just so critically important to not just take these arguments at face value, but to really ask, okay, whose interpretation of tradition is being presented here? And is this really the truth? Or is there perhaps an alternative view that isn't being presented? Fantastic. I mean, it's really a fascinating paper. I, I uh, highly recommend that this is uh, read by as many people as possible because it helps us understand our communities, it helps us understand how peace is actually being made, uh, as you said, uh, locally. Um, this paper is also av available in Arabic, so I'm very happy about that because it comes from the region and we need to have it in Arabic as well. It will be available and we will be sharing with you uh, the links of, uh, of uh, this paper. Um, traditionally, peacemaking, uh, peace building or negotiations or conflict resolution was made by state actors. Mm -hmm. But as the nature of conflict evolved, the actors who make peace or who should be making peace should naturally evolve with the evolution of conflicts. And now, now we, we are faced with, with multi-layer diplomacy. You know, it's not only state actors who, who sit on the table or who should be sitting on the table, uh, but many different stakeholders as well. Azade, you sit at a global think tank. You sit at the International Crisis Group, uh, where you are uh, doing more and more work on conflict resolution and more and more uh, uh, work on applying a gender lens to conflict resolution. Um, think tanks also have a big role to play, and clearly uh, this role or this um, uh, uh, you know, input is being carved uh, day after day in the absence of others who are being able to achieve peace. Tell me a little bit about the work that you do. Tell us a little bit about um, from where you're sitting, how do you see the conflicts in our region? Um, thank you so much, Karma. And you know, this is uh, really an extraordinary paper and such an <clears throat> important discussion. So I'm really delighted to, to have the chance to, um, to share a little bit about where my work um, overlaps with um, the themes that you and Alexandra have been have been talking about. Um, you know, we are so many years in our region into women's 
roles being under-evaluated, unseen, really invisible. Uh, and it strikes me that we're now decades into this phenomenon. Um, you know, throughout the middle of the 20th century, the early 20th century, um, all of the conflicts that we've had in our region, women have been um, at the forefront of, um, of trying to resolve, of trying to endure, of trying to minimize the impact uh, on communities. Um, so I think it's so critical to focus on documenting this, mm -hmm. on bringing language that our young people and our communities can relate to and understand to finally break out of this cycle of not seeing the contributions that women make. Because we have such a gap between what women do on the ground and in communities and in towns and in cities where conflict is rife and women in formal politics. So women at the level of the city council, of parliament, of cabinets. And where is that gap? It partly comes from exactly what you and Alexandra have been discussing is that when women mediate, when women bring their influence into politics, it's often in different ways uh, than men do. They're not status seeking. They're not trying to um, kind of deploy social reputation, deploy social reputation. And so, so often, they're sort of then written out of what happens. Um, so when the histories are written or when we look back to our, our conflicts of you know, 30 years past, 20 years past, women are not in the books. They're not in the record. Um, and that perpetuates even this young generation who's so socially active, country to country, Lebanon, Iraq, Iran, everywhere, socially active, activists at the forefront, but not as much represented in formal politics. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really critical to make the connections um, in our own consciousness about why we still have that gap. Um, you asked though about, about Crisis Group and the work that we do as a think tank, based in the fields, doing field research on conflicts and then writing policy papers or writing reports, trying to map why those conflicts are happening and how they can be ended or the violence reduced. And we're trying increasingly to look at those actors and stakeholders and different sort of social forces who are part of the conflict and part of the solution to the conflict, but who are not seen at the high level tables. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, in Mali, in Iraq, um, I recently did, recently now, um, a couple of years ago, you know, work on understanding the role and, and the paper um, does an excellent job of highlighting this, the role of women in Iraq negotiating the return of families who had been um, accused of being collaborators or, or affiliated with with ISIS in Iraq, mm -hmm. the way that women were so crucial because, you know, in a lot of these communities, men are still imprisoned and detained right. in Iraq. So it's actually women who are in the community who have to take back other women. And it's often sort of at the official level, mukhtars or tribal chiefs or different male authority figures who do the negotiation, but it's women who are in the position of being able to uphold it, mm -hmm. to explain it to each other and accept it, to reject that outcome or to to agree amongst themselves look we need to put this conflict behind us even though we're angry our husbands were killed we want revenge we want compensation we want some sort of accountability or justice which are kind of often absent from the high level conversations it's women who are 
in the, the rooms where the discussions that actually determine whether those, dis, those agreements can hold, whether that community can reconcile or at least move on. Mm -hmm. So understanding and writing into our work, all of that phenomenon. Um, and, and sometimes that means um, uh, widening the lens, persuading our fellow analysts that this is relevant, that transitional justice, that getting the community to accept the past and to feel like their pain and their loss is accepted, you know, that's what transitional justice means in the end, that that's not an add-on, that's not a soft issue, that's going to make or break your deal. Mm -hmm. um, so if women are pushing to have that as part of the, as part of the agreements or as part of their role, you need that because that's going to determine whether, you know, what the, the big men at the table agree can hold at the community level. So mm -hmm. we're trying to essentially take all of that nuance and all of that kind of back room, living room, sitting in the tent, deciding all of the work that women do and bring it into the papers, bring it into the policy discussions and bring them out of um, this kind of not visible space that women inhabit. And, and looking at their power and recognizing it. I mean, as a Lebanese, I'm a, a living example of how the lack of transitional justice in my own country and how, uh, you know, this, this lack of the exercise of dealing with the past has led us from one crisis to another or actually have kept, has kept us in the same crisis without being able to actually come out of it. And so, I mean, it really resonates uh, what you're saying. It really resonates and, I, and I'm, I'm very happy to know that Crisis Group is actually working in this space uh, because this idea, this, this, this topic is still not accessible to the mainstream population. It, it, it's a bit of an elitist concept. And I think papers like this one where we're interviewing, you know, women on the ground and sort of work that you're doing on the field will help mainstream this idea of transitional justice if every single one of us is affected by it this is not something that you know it's done on the top and then we reap the fruits of it no we have to be engaged in it and it affects our day-to-day -day lives i'm gonna come back to you um as i did with a question in a bit but alexandra uh one of the findings of the paper uh, talks about the digitalization of peace building. This is a very interesting topic today because we spoke about how the nature of conflict is evolving, but also the space of conflict is evolving. So traditionally, we spoke about the physical space, the kinetic space, the land, air, and sea of, of conflict. Today, there is a digital space for conflict. There is a cyber space for conflict. And the tools that we need to solve these conflicts are are different than the ones that we've traditionally used uh, or, or attempted to use to, to resolve conflicts in the physical space. So can we talk a little bit about this? Yeah, for sure. No, it's, um, it's a really important um, topic and it, it is part of the evolution of conflict, as you rightly said. Uh, and we had the additional factor of a COVID-19 pandemic, of which of course, you know, forced us all to, to stay home and uh, pushed many of these uh, activities of, of dialogue and peace building into the online space. And uh, so this is why this report uh, took up this issue of digitalization as, as one of the key themes. Uh, to look also at how does this affect women's inclusion and women's participation in peace efforts. 
And I think um, what is important and what the report succeeds in doing is, is to present uh, a nuanced picture to, to show some of the opportunities that the online space presents, mm -hmm. but to also uh, talk very uh, extensively and in detail about many of the challenges and the new challenges that, um, that digitalization and, and working online presents. Um, I think there are often hopes expressed that by, being, by, by moving into the online space, we're able to democratize peace efforts and bring in a greater range of actors and make it easier for people at the grassroots level to participate, bring in a younger generation of peace builders and, and being able to reach them more easily. And I think this can be true uh, and hopefully we can work towards making that true. But there are also obstacles. Um, I think we have to be mindful of the fact that um, not everybody has access to digital technologies. And so we have to be very careful to not perpetuate mm -hmm. existing patterns of, uh, of exclusion that already exist. The fact that already a lot of the attention and a lot of the international support that is being given to peace actors privileges certain demographic groups. Uh, we engage a lot more with certain uh, elite women, urban women. Mm -hmm. We have much more difficulty in reaching uh, rural areas, more conservative areas, more underprivileged areas. We have to be careful not to perpetuate these same patterns when we move to the online space because there are still many areas that don't actually have internet connectivity, mm -hmm. that do not have the hardware and software that is necessary to actually do this work online. So I think uh, these are things to be, to be mindful of and, and to actively work towards, uh, towards overcoming. Uh, being mindful also of the fact that the digital gender divide also still very much persists. And mm -hmm. so that in many, in many areas, uh, women are at a particular disadvantage in terms of being able to, to access these technologies. The other important thing uh, that has uh, come out or that has been confirmed by this, by this report um, is the fact that we are facing and that women are facing particular protection issues in the online space. Um, and uh, we have at, at UN Women, we have actually uh, carried out uh, some very important research also on documenting the increase, really the exponential mm -hmm. increase of online violence during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and the types of misogynistic hate speech, threats uh, and, and, and other, uh, other hate speech and, and, um, and intimidation attempts that are being perpetuated against women uh, online. And we have documented how this then very often extends from the online space into the physical world as well. Uh, and this is all in a context where, of course, women, um, peacemakers and peace builders are already facing a very challenging environment, a shrinking civic space, many, many attacks and, and intimidation attempts uh, against them. And so um, the report really makes a strong appeal to think about more effective protection measures as, as really one of the key issues that we have to invest in if we want to support and, and uh, encourage women's participation uh, in peace efforts and in political life more, more widely. No, absolutely. And, and speaking again of multi-layer diplomacy, how important it is for us 
whether it's UN Women or, or the Aysan Fadis Institute or Crisis Group or all the stakeholders involved in this, this peace building effort to really build bridges with, with the digital enterprises, with, with Twitter, with Facebook, with, I mean, Meta, Instagram, Facebook, WhatsApp. M many of these women are threatened via WhatsApp. You know, they have protection issues. And, and, and there is a big role to play for these, for these companies. And they may not know the, the role that they have to play unless we tell them, you know, you know, guys, you should, folks, listen to us. You know, we have a whole new perspective to bring and we need to work together to protect specifically peace builders um, in, the, in the online space. Now, Azade, you mentioned uh, uh, that you know, women do a great job on the ground. They are often uh, uh, overlooked um, and they have great success stories. Um, but somewhere, you know, somewhere in their work, they hit a wall, they hit, we can call it the glass ceiling, we can call it a wall, and that prevents that work from being transferred, if that's the correct use of the word, into a more official peace building process, whether it's track 1.5 or track 1. What is the reason for this? I mean, this is something that I scratch my head over almost every day trying to understand, you know. Why are we so successful on a certain level, but then, you know, when it comes to official representation, something just, the numbers don't reflect it. What, what, what are we doing wrong? Um. <clears throat> That's a critical question. That's the question at the center of, of everything, Karma. Um, I mean, I, I will start with um, looking at the role of the convening actors. And by that, I mean the UN, I mean states and governments that are advocates and backers of the women, peace and security agenda and are always trying to rhetorically bring women to the table and talk a lot, talk a really good game about women's inclusion. Um, because in the end, you know, if we're sitting, um, uh, if we're looking at this as researchers and scholars and activists, women from the countries who are facing these challenges, you know, we know that the male politicians and the patriarchal systems and cultures that we are up against do not want to include us. Not really. I mean, we are their rivals. They want to be at the table. So we know that that's partly for reasons of power. It's partly patriarchal. Uh, and that the our domestic feminist gender equality seeking movements are targeting these men who are occupying a lot of political space. So that's our domestic struggle. So really, um, that's always going to be the case. So I think you know, I would point the finger, and I don't mean to say that, you know, in an accusatory way, but I think the allies that we expect are not doing their job. Mm -hmm. Who convenes track one? Who, con who convenes track 1.5 and track two and track three? Whether it's the UN, special envoys, uh, Western governments that are very often the backers of these processes, they need to be doing a much better job demanding that women who are involved at the community level, grassroots level, doing peace building work are at the table as well. Mm -hmm. um, because they are, uh, and often this goes back to, you know, what Alexandra highlighted at the beginning, this idea of tradition. Who is the expert on whether Yemeni tradition or Syrian tradition 
um, permits or is hospitable to women being at the table? Should that be a European envoy for the United Nations making that call? Or should that be a Yemeni woman who says, look, this is my domestic struggle and it's being played out at the international table. So don't mix up you know, what I'm trying to be up against, against patriarchy. I've had a 30 year struggle with this mm -hmm. and I have been active in my country's politics. So don't, don't talk about, you know, social norms from a quite orientalist perspective, I would say, as a way of sometimes shielding also powerful states that don't want women at the table. Part of the Part of the struggle is having those who are convening, whether it's UN special envoys or Western governments, um, not take the easy way out to not say, oh, traditional social norms are not hospitable to pushing this. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's a country that is quite conservative socially and is, and is obstructing this, you know, let that country bear the political reputational cost of saying, no, we don't want to include women. Azadi Alexander, is it on us? to inform the convener? Is it on us to lobby? Is it on us or is it on them? I mean, I think, <laughs> I think it's, a, it's a collective uh, endeavor that, that we're in here. And I think um, one thing that uh, I thought was a very important point that was highlighted in the report was to say, we need to do a better job of involving key allies in the sense of the male gatekeepers who are there, they need to do a much better job of actually supporting women's participation. And this goes very much, I think, to, to the point that Azade was making as well. Um, I think there is this tendency to put everything actually on the shoulders of women themselves. Right. Uh, but the women are not the problem, right? And so uh, we are expecting them to fix a problem that is not actually driven by How them themselves. How much responsibility are we taking upon ourselves to fix this? Absolutely, absolutely. And so I think we need to be uh, also more strategic and smarter mm -hmm. about who else we try and constrict into this struggle, right? And make sure that, that actually everybody plays their role. And especially, you know, we, we've been talking about these multiple layers and levels at which peace is made and the multitude of actors from sort of the local level to the national level to the international level. I think each piece of that puzzle is important here. And so we should be calling on everyone to actually uh, engage on, on this issue and, and to, to lobby and, and take women's participation seriously. Um, there is one other point that I, that I wanted to add because I thought it was really interesting that this was raised by, by several of, of the women that were interviewed for the report as well, which is that we need to break out of this very narrow and siloed thinking and lobbying for women's participation in peace processes. Um, and to take a much more holistic approach and understand that you cannot just look at women's participation in mediation and peace efforts um, in isolation from wider issues of women's political participation, women's participation in, in political life, and gender equality within society more widely. 
Uh, and I think that that is a very, very important point. It's obviously something that is, that is difficult to do in practice, but it goes again to this issue of how many of these things are interconnected, how, you know, if you don't address violence against women and protection concerns within society, then of course you will not be able to increase participation for women because it will not be safe for them. It will not be right. possible for them to do that. If you write out women out of the, the history books, out of the transitional justice processes that, that Azadeh spoke about so eloquently, then yes, of course, you will not have an appreciation of women's contribution to society, to peace. Um, you, will, you will not have a process of genuine reconciliation when it comes also to, to the horrors that they've experienced and, and, and so forth. And so again, how can you then expect to have this inclusive peace process? Mm -hmm. So I think this is, this is another important um, perspective to, to kind of not just think about these things in, in these sort of narrow, uh, siloed kind of ways, but, but really think about the overall picture that, that we are looking at. Azadeh, back to you. How do we uh, bring in the conveners so that they're on, they're on, they are on our side? How do we convince the conveners? I think convincing the conveners is partly a political challenge that we all need to undertake in our individual spheres. I mean, I undertake it at crisis group when I persuade or try to convince my colleagues that looking at the gender aspect of a conflict or inclusion, what is, what is, what is wrong in a peace process? Why is the, you know, why is the Yemeni multi-party peace track or political track? Why is it ailing? Why does it have no chance or why has it had so little chance uh, of, of progress? You know, persuading even colleagues who are liberal minded um, that, that looking at inclusion and, and as Alexandra says, not just narrow women's inclusion, but inclusion of other marginalized groups, mm -hmm. inclusion of state parties to the conflict that are politically inconvenient. You know, who is, who is absent that makes this process so narrow that it just doesn't really have a chance, mm -hmm. you know, even though it exists in name. So I think some of it is, you know, a great deal of it is actually really political work about who is being excluded, whether it's a state actor, you know, if you can't resolve it without Iran, why are you trying? If you can't resolve it at the community level without, um, you know, people from this community and people who are, you know, uh, controlling access to this road uh, and people who are, you know, being impacted by um, rising prices because of this network of, of roads that are not connected to each other. It's all mm -hmm. a mosaic. And so if, if, you know, it's a political kind of mapping of who is missing and what are the politics of the process, whether it's uh, gender marginalization, whether it's just a you know, a country that's politically inconvenient at the moment, um, but they're all crucial. So I think I think that's um, that's a big part of it is persuading uh, us to be honest also about the processes um, and and why their chances are the way that they are. So Azade, on digitalization of peace building, is there anything that you would like to add? I think your point, Karma, about the role of tech companies is critical because as Alexander said, the shrinking civic space for women uh, is happening online as well, not just in the street. Uh, and women's political participation 
uh, is really jeopardized by the way that they are attacked, the way that their activism is shamed online. Uh, I think women journalists, women journalists who are working in conflict zones and in and in areas that are that are um, riven with conflict online are extremely vulnerable. And I think that tech companies find this very difficult to navigate. Maybe they don't feel like it's their space. They don't have the expertise. Um, I find that tech companies, in my experience, uh, are very open to picking up issues like human trafficking, very obvious things that put mm -hmm. that are almost police matters. But the fact that their platforms are making it uh, almost impossible for women journalists in certain of the countries of our region to be able to have a public platform for their journalism, which is holding those parties to the conflict accountable for their misdeeds, for their violence, mm -hmm. uh, is so crucial. Um, you know, women who are trying to participate in politics in Libya, if they're humiliated online, or if personal information about them is used, or if, if their opponents um, want to portray their activism as offending Islam, you know, very manipulative, but can pick up like wildfire online, mm -hmm. it's very cynical. Um, and this is a whole new frontier that women, whether they're journalists or activists or politicians, uh, is, is very threatening for them. Uh, and it feels kind of scary to think that, you know, that that's all in the hands of, um, of people in Palo Alto, California, who run Meta, who run Twitter. But we have to find ways, I think, to lobby them as well. So this sphere that they control is not just a new danger zone for women. Absolutely, thank you for that. Alexandra Deer, Azademo Alveni, Thank you so much for this eye-opening conversation and thank you for being guests with us today on the Diplomament Podcast. Thank you so much, Kama. Pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you. It was really wonderful speaking to you both. Thank you. Thank you.